Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. In this episode, I return to the well and drink from the wisdom of Jim McGregor. If the name sounds familiar to our regular Inside Asia listeners, that's because he's been on our program several times before, each time generating a big response. Why? Because Jim pulls no punches. He tells it like it is. Diplomacy be damned. We like that. It was an open letter to President Trump and the U.S. Congress published in the Washington Post earlier this month that caught my attention and prompted me to reach out. Jim and dozens of other well-regarded Sinologists were signatories to what some claim is a letter of acquiescence to Beijing. Some argue, and the White House would mostly agree, that now is the time to press for recompense. The playing field has been uneven for too long. There's truth in that. But just because one wants something doesn't mean you're going to get it. China is not the nation it once was. It's grown up, become stronger, more resilient, and self-assured. Its influence in matters of global geopolitics is absolute, and bending the knee to the U.S. is most assuredly not in the script. As you're about to hear, Jim suggests that maybe it's time to change the conversation. The open letter referenced at the outset of our discussion was published under the title, China is not an enemy. It, in effect, presents a seven-point proposition to restore a semblance of order to an otherwise fractured U.S.-China relationship. To understand what's at stake, I put the question to McGregor, and here's our conversation. The letter came to me. I didn't really even look at it that closely. It seemed reasonable enough, but the headline of China not being an enemy caught me because I'm very, very concerned about, um, you know, the prejudice and racism and really a witch hunt against Chinese and American companies and in American universities um, that could come out of this. Uh, So anyhow, I I signed it and then, um, oh, there's been all kinds. I'm on a I'm on a number of groups with uh, sinologists and uh, journalists, and there's been a lot of blowback on it and a lot of debate. And it's funny because I'm, you know, I've always been known as a very strong uh, fact-based critic, and people are shocked I signed it. And so I went and uh, actually I said, well, I'm now a panda hugger, and I had my uh, graphics person here take a, use Photoshop to have me uh, hugging pandas, and I sent that around a photo of me hugging pandas. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, there's nothing over the top uh, I, that I could read. I mean, that seven point principle that's saying this is this is a reasonable set of propositions. We just want to get back to more of a pragmatic positioning around this. Um, they were simply declaring that, you know, why don't we take our our relative responsibilities and then just see where we go from here. But but one aspect actually, and maybe you could tell, talk about the letter, how it came into being, and then and then a little bit about why there's this wellspring of, uh, of, of resentment uh, as, as a result? Well, I think the letter, um, you know, there was a uh, Asia Society, um, I think it was done by Hoover and the Asia Society report about six months ago that was very strong. And people were thinking, well, that, that's even too hard on China. I actually like that report, too. Um, <laughs> And and uh, I think this might be a response. I don't know a lot about it. I just know that uh, Taylor Frabel is a, uh, a guy I hugely respect, who's an MIT professor. I knew when he was a young kid in Taiwan, where his father was an engineer for Bechtel. Um, and Ezra Vogel and, um, you know, some of the others who did it, Michael Swain. So I... I, I just went along because I like those guys, and it, it was reasonable enough. The The criticism of it is, um, are you asking to do what we did before because it didn't work? And 
you know, like there's a part in there about, well, you know, by pushing so hard, you're disempowering the moderates in, and, um, you know, empowering the hardliners, which, you know, to many of us is an old trope. It's, you know, China says if you push too hard, you'll really hurt the people that want to reform. And it's kind of, it can be a game they play with foreigners to get you to soften up. And uh, so that's been, that's been coming up very strong. But, you know, I think what's re- really behind it is um, a bit of a, there's a lot of blame game going on on, um, you know, uh, where do we go wrong? You know, was it uh, was it Philistines in the business community who, you know, took profits over patriotism and just, you know, were uh, so keen on business in China, making money in China, they didn't worry very much about what was really going on um, with America? Or, or, or was it starry-eyed academics who, uh, um, you know, were, were just, you know, so enthralled by China that they weren't really uh, paying attention? Um, or was it um, uh, the bureaucrats in the State Department and elsewhere who um, were, you know, China was always able to kind of manipulate and say, well, if you push too hard on this, we can't help you in Iran, we can't help you on North Korea, we can't work on climate change. And, you know, it was, I think there's a lot, of, I think the, the thing is what went, for a lot of people, it's what went wrong. You know, where did we go wrong? Because it's always all about us. Where did we go wrong? Well, I don't think we went wrong. I think China changed. I think China changed directions. And, um, you know, that's where we see. And I think that's why, there's you know, some of the back and forth online has been um, there are no moderates around Xi Jinping. And if they were, they wouldn't have a voice. So why are you worried about the moderates mm. and, and that kind of a thing? What do you believe? Do you think that's true? Actually, I do. I do believe that change, and maybe I'm invested in this. And you know, look, I I've been involved for 30 years uh, in China and living here for 30 years, and I've been with Am working with Amcham for 25. A lot of it on U.S.-China um, relations, and a lot of it on U.S. stuff. And you know, I, along with many others, was lobbying for most favored nation status and lobbying for China to get into the WTO. I also believe China was on a different trajectory under Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji. I mean, no one ever believed they were going to become a democracy, but they certainly were headed to a more pluralistic system within the party, a bit like the LDP, where you know there'd be a number of voices in the party, and then they'd all come in line. I mean, that's that's what all the rhetoric was before, and that's actually the steps they were taking. Um, and that shifted um, strongly. It started under Hu Jintao, actually, and then it just really went in a different direction under Xi. And now we've got, well, we basically have gone to top-down Leninism, uh, all, all decisions and power at the very top, a uh, very anti-foreign kind of stance. Um, so I don't know. There's, you know, there's others that say, "Hey, you should have figured this out a long ago." They're just China's doing what it did in the imperial dynasty days, and you all fell for it. You know, Michael Pillsbury's book, which, you know, the hundred year marathon, just says China for a hundred years has been out to usurp the United States, and we've been foolish to go along. And engagement was a mistake, and he has Trump's ear, and now and. Um, you know, the, the, everybody else is kind of a, a, you know, a naive fool to go along, and we've all been taken. And that is, that's kind of become the attitude in, in Washington. I was recently there for a week or 10 days, actually, and we did meetings with 50 congressional offices, National Security Council, White House, you name it. 
And um, I can tell you, China's got no friends in Washington these days outside of the Chinese embassy. It's really, uh, it's really kind of shifted strongly. And I've watched this shift over the last few years, but now it's really, it's really gone, gone in a in a very dark direction, actually. Well, Jim, I want to go back to what you said before. China has changed. I mean, you know, the, the, the opportunity for isolationism is actually over, isn't it? I mean, it's coming into its own. It's got the economic prowess. Uh, it, it has the backing of, of other, other uh, allies. I mean, it, it seems to be moving beyond our control. And therefore, why would we take kind of a hardline approach on an organ or on a country uh, that's already uh, yielding, you know, a different type of positioning in the world? Well, here's the problem with our approach. There was going to be a pushback under Hillary. It was time to change. It was time to have a much stronger um, pushback on China. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, this is Trump. Yeah. And his, his approach is he just likes to punch somebody in the face every day. And um, I don't think they realize the power of this country. You know, they don't, um, you know, they need to take the members of Congress and put them in a glass-bottomed airplane and fly them over Shenzhen and Shanghai and Wuhan and Chengdu and see the power of this country, see the, 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 the you know, the, the industries and the people and the modernization. It's, I read something the other day, you know, it's like nobody goes to America anymore and says, I'm looking at the future, but they come to China and they say, I'm looking at the future. And that's, and, you know, that that, that kind of hits... It's home with me. So I digressed a bit. You know, look, a smart put... Oh, go ahead. No, no, but what if that's a really interesting point. But are, are you saying that, you know, they're, they're, they're lashing out at China because they actually feel that they could get away with that? They don't recognize that there could be repercussions because it's actually a lot stronger, more capable now than it ever was before? Well, you hear out of Kudlow and, and uh, Trump and others that, you know, China... The economy's in real trouble now because of what we've done, and, you know, we're going to get what we need. And, you know, I, I, I think they believe that, you know, if they push hard enough, China will, will you know, will bend at the knee for America because we are so powerful. Mm. And that, that simply is not the case. I was talking to a diplomat here a couple of weeks ago who um, um, a U.S. senator had come to visit who hadn't been to China before. And on the way from the airport to the hotel, uh, this senator must have said, oh, my God, uh, about 100 times, because they're looking at these buildings and all this infrastructure. And go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> they had no idea um, what we got going here. But, you know, let me um, let me turn to China for a second. Um, China has screwed up. They've overreached. Hmm. You know, the, 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 uh, you know the, the conversation in Beijing, I would guess that at some quiet levels, and they have to be pretty quiet in, um, under this political regime, um, is who lost America? Mm. I mean, China had America where we wanted us. You, you know, the, the hackers could steal technology from major American companies, and those major companies would go to uh, the USTR and say, I'm really unhappy about this, you won't believe this, and the USTR would say, what should I do? And they'd say, oh, don't, no, 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 don't do anything. I can't mess up my market share in exactly, China. I can't yeah. have them coming in with a Don Raid and a phytosanitary bureau and the antitrust bureau 
So companies were as scared of China as they were lowered by the market. And now it just China overreached. They turned it wasn't easy to turn the American business community against China. That took a lot of work and they did a good job of it. Mm. And, and and the same with with many in Washington. So we don't I don't think we should spend a lot of time, you know, uh, talking about where we went wrong on China. We we then of course we should go we should spend some time talking about getting our own act together because you know we got my my view of what we need to do on China is we need to invest in ourselves, uh, we need to protect ourselves, and we need to work with our allies. And I can go through all three of those if you'd like. Yeah, please do. I mean, in fact, in, in, instead of worrying so much about China, just tend to our own home. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, invest in ourselves. You know, how about how about putting money into science and technology education? You know, how about giving automatic green cards to any foreigner who gets a gets a PhD in the hard sciences in America? What are we doing educating the world's brains and telling him uh, to go home? Um, you know, we need to we need to fund science and technology research. If you look at the history of innovation in America, um, it's been a, a big chunk of it has been government money. I mean, I've talked to uh, bankers who say that, you know, American chip companies in the Silicon Valley, the startup ones, have to take Chinese money because American venture capital won't invest in them because the timeline is, their, their timeline is too short. They need too quick a return. Chinese money is patient. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't get, we, you know, in some ways I think we've been rich too long. You know, we, we, we gotten too complacent and, um, you know, this is the end of, we're, we're now at the end of the Ronald Reagan era where it was all about, you know, it's all about free markets, solve all problems, and you should never do any planning. That would be communist. And, and you know, where we ended up with that, we've ended up, you know, we're, we're starting to look like India where we got a lot of rich people and a poor government and we're not, you know, we're not investing in ourselves. Jim, do you, do you think that there's a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, flashback to maybe the time of Gorbachev and Reagan in the late 1980s? And uh, we saw uh, maybe, you know, you had the, the Soviet Union starting to falter a bit to say, well, let's push hard and let's push now. Do you think a lot of people are borrowing a page from that book and saying perhaps China with its weakened economy and its dependence on, on U.S. manufacturing and exporting uh, might be sub- susceptible to a similar uh, type of uh, influences? <laughs> yes, that's yeah. a sad thing. Yeah. The, the the old the old committee on present danger um, that was uh, used that was uh, you know that was around to take on the Soviet Union has reconstituted itself mm. um, with uh, Steve Bannon having a big hand. And it's called the Committee on Present Danger China, and I watched their opening videos on YouTube. And you've got these older guys going, yes, remember with Ronald Reagan? Remember we took on the Soviet Union one? We can do it again. They should come over here because this sure as hell isn't Moscow in the 1960s. So it's, so it's old school <laughs> politics throwing itself against a new world order. Is that what, it, is that what you're saying? That's, that's probably a, a pretty good way to put it. And it's just we're, we're, we're kind of deluded on our position in the world. Um, you know, we have to compete. China, you know, for all of its faults and all of its excesses, and there's, there's a lot of those, China has 5, 10, 20-year plans, 30-year uh, plans. And China's on the move and it's focused. And, you know, how the hell did we get where we are? You ever heard of the World Production Board? World War II, we were the biggest planned economy on Earth. 
the, all the companies came together under an organization run by a Sears executive, and the American economy was, you know, was all coordinated to fight that war. And then after the war, it was turned to consumer goods, and that's where we built the power we have today. And uh, that's what China is doing in its own in its own way. And we have to we've got to come together as a country, and we've got to compete, we've got to coordinate, we've got to plan, we've got to invest. You know, we don't need these trillion dollar tax cuts for rich people, Jesus. Well, Jim, there you kind of said it, right? I mean, this is the idea. Isn't China just doing today what the United States did 50, 60, 70 years ago? They're, they're leveraging their strength, their power, their government, their economy, uh, preferential lending rates, you name it. You know, they're doing everything that we did at, at a time and place in order to what some might argue then was overreach. I mean, is China really doing anything that different? Aren't they playing by the same rules? No, I mean, they have the same um, they have the same ambitions and the same um, you know very active and aggressive uh, way of doing things. But this is different. This is a totalitarian system um, that that, play, that plays by its own rules. You know, the we were not we were not our government was not stealing technology from companies around the world and, and, and spreading it out to our companies. Now, there's, I mean, that's, I mean, that is, and, and that is the difference here, right? It's, you know, China is, we used to look at the Chinese system uh, as a weak, had a, had a, a basic weakness because you could not get uh, prosperous or wealthy unless you had open information and democracy. Well, China turned that on its head. And so now the Chinese system actually has uh, distinct advantages in this current, this, in, in this current, it's a tech war, really. It's not a trade war. Mm. Because, you know, business, you, business used to be the ballast between, the US, between China and the West. China needed technology. It needed money. It needed know-how. Uh, the West got uh, very efficient, in, uh, uh, cheap manufactured goods out of China. Uh, companies made money in China. Um, China funded our, our, our profligacy with our our budget deficit, keeping inflation down. There was, but it was business actually was the the connector. Actually, I talked to a friend the other day who was a diplomat who um, interviewed a Kissinger after Kissinger had come to uh, Beijing after Tiananmen to talk to Deng Xiaoping, mm. and Deng Xiaoping told told Kissinger. Um, as long as we provide business opportunities um, for um, American companies in China, we'll have a solid floor on the U.S.-China relations. And he's, he, he, he was ac- absolutely right. Well, that floor is, is, uh, is, is not, not so much there anymore. So if Deng were alive today, looking at the situation, what do you think he would say in terms of what went wrong? Um, well, I think he would... Uh, I think he, he, I think he did not want to be uh, a pariah to the world, mm. and China's heading in that direction. Unfortunately, you know it's really bad for the Chinese people. But um, the, the way China's China's actions have really, um, at least with the West, um, have really turned everybody off, and uh, they've got a very um, there is no soft power. It's only it's only hard power. And uh, I, Deng did not want that. I think he wanted China to be part of the world. He wanted to be prosperous. He wanted to, you know, help ch- 
change the way the world operated to be more, you know, have China have more of a say. But I don't think he wanted this division. He certainly didn't want a, a, a government that, you know, um, didn't have term limits and, you know, the thing, other ins- things he instituted. Um, you know, not that he was, he, he was far from a soft guy, but um, just the direction. The, China has changed direction. It's not, you know, we should not be starry-eyed that, uh, where where China's going is where we used to go. I mean, there are some similarities, but not really. This is a different. This is a, a different form of government. And now it's got this. Now it has this advantage because if you you know if you have a thirty billion dollar loan line of credit from China Development Bank, um, if you don't have to make money, if you've got a very opaque structure on who even owns your business. Well, you can build 5G, you know, faster than anybody else. Mm. You know, especially if you got an entrepreneurial culture of smart engineers, which which Huawei does. But um, you know, then they can go out in the market and they can undercut pricing on everybody else and own the market. Um, that's it. The Chinese interface of of, of, of subsidies, a state-owned enterprise, or even subsidies for its private companies. Um, actually, it makes it hard for companies that it makes it impossible in many cases for companies that have to make money to compete. So, what we have to do are uh, in the trade negotiations. Our main our main ask is change your system. Well, good luck with that one. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not going to change your system. So, we have to. This is where we get to the protect ourselves part, where the Chinese system has advantages that are unfair in uh, going by. You know, the way the way Western capitalism works then you have to protect yourself. So, you know, when China is out doing acquisitions, I, I'm in favor of blocking acquisitions that are in, in um, strategic technologies and also um, are even, even things that are part of American economic security. Because, and that's, I, that's the sad thing. China, if China wanted to build a tech sector, it's got all these capable entrepreneurs, engineers, scientists, venture capital money coming out of its ears. If those people were out buying companies and, uh, uh, and starting companies and competing fairly with the West, they would probably uh, kick ass. Um, the, the, pro- the problem is now, as soon as uh, you know, a, a foreign company is bought, it comes into China, it's a Chinese company. It's got all the funding it needs. It's got regulators who will clear the market for it. Um, eventually, the other foreign companies in that market, in, in the China market, in that sector, will get knocked out. And if you get knocked out in China, you're not going to make it globally. Mm. So that's why companies see this as an existential threat. And actually, what also changed was foreign companies out in the global market started seeing these Chinese companies out competing against them. And they looked back at China and said, wait, these guys are all competing against me out here. And in China, I'm blocked from doing real business. I have to do a joint venture. In fact, they learned from me. Why am I putting up with that? Yeah, so, fa- we, you know, it, 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 it's a turning point. Yeah, fair enough. On even playing field. I mean, I get it. And I, I don't think anyone would argue against that. It's just how do you arrive there, given all of the uh, the, the tit for tat and, and the, the trade war and the technology cold war. And I mean, you know, there, there's so much language around this where it feels, Jim, like we're getting into a situation where we're going to mire ourselves in all this rhetoric and not be able to pierce through to a pragmatic solution. What What are your concerns? Well, I mean, Trump is like the drunken sailor of trade negotiators, right? You know, he keeps putting out all these tweets that go off in all these in these all these strange directions. I mean, the best thing we could have done is be in TPP. 
if we that was that was the dumbest thing we'd done since invading Iraq. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trans-Pacific Partnership had a forty percent of global GDP. It it basically knocked down eighteen thousand tariffs for American products uh, going into these other countries because we already had low tariffs for them. It opened up commerce between them, and it would have been a trading block that China would have had to compete to get in, and that would have, China would have had to reform, and that would have been a positive. Um, driver for China to reform. In fact, the reformers in Beijing were very much for uh, for uh, TPP. Same thing with TTIP, the, uh, the trade negotiations between the U.S. and Europe that they probably were fighting over butter prices and wine tariffs and getting nowhere. But if, the, you know, if Europe and America came up with a strong trading regime between the two of them and China wasn't part of it, then China would have to compete to get in there. They'd have to reform. That would be a positive way to do this. Instead, we're you know we're acting like we're king of the world. We're going to smash China over the head and and make them change. I can tell you this: the most recent stuff is is actually it, it it's going to hurt the United States badly. Uh, this Huawei and the entity list stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's my point: is that it feels like a, a series of major missed opportunities where we're driving down the wrong road. And obviously, given Trump's uh, leanings towards Twitter and she's uh, political intransigence, um, what are the chances that we can pull this back from the brink and shape a more pragmatic and mutually beneficial outcome? Well, um, here's my idea for what it's worth. Um, we're gonna we got to come to some kind of an agreement to bring down the boil, right? Yeah. You know, we buy more goods. China makes some changes that you know on on tech policy, but you know doesn't accede to changing the core of its system like we're asking. But we get enough because both sides need to bring down their rhetoric and and move on. I think there's, uh, you know, China's just waiting to see when Ch when Trump needs that for his reelection. They're just kind of sitting and waiting figuring that he's going to need it for his re-election eventually, you know, to keep the stock market rolling. Um, that's their calculation. Um, but then, you know, do a deal. But then the next step, in my idea, would be start, change the conversation and let's have reciprocity talks. Mm. You know, China says, you know, they want a great power relationship with America. We say, yes, you are a great power and we are now equals. And so we are going to start over again. We're going to look at all of our, our business and trade relationships, and we're going to renegotiate them based on reciprocity. Can't do it there, you can't do it here, and vice versa. Now, there'll be many instances where each country does not want reciprocity, so you start from a new platform, and then you, you negotiate your way out of there. But that then adjusts the relationship, and it also saves Xi's face, because she is no longer acceding to American wishes. He is bringing equality and, and um, reciprocity with a, you know, with another, because they're both great powers. It's a nice construct for him to get out of this. And it's also a nice way for us to change the conversation, restart it on, on a whole different level. If there were looking at the litany of, of options that are out there, I mean, everything from, you know, trade imbalance to, you know, technology uh, access to, uh, you know, you, you name it, right? There, there's just so many different possibilities where we could start. Is there one or are there one or two where you feel uh, there's a higher probability of them reaching parity and, and a willingness to agree in order to shift course and start to move back towards a more constructive relationship? Um, 
it's hard to pick out pick out one thing. I think that you know, I think that we have to see what is important to them and what is important to us. What is in our national interest? What is their national interest? And and, and go from there. I think really this this is so complicated now. I don't know if I can unpack that. I think the only thing I can talk about is, you know, bring the boil down with some kind of agreement that both sides can claim um, victory and and then move on to a whole different construct. Because right now it is so entangled and so screwed up. I mean, it's, what this entity list does is putting Huawei and its 70 affiliates on the entity list um, and, and thereby blocking um, – U.S. companies and other companies with U.S. technology from selling to Huawei. What what it's doing is it's getting and, and also the tariffs. It's getting foreign companies to bring more of their supply chain into China yeah. in important industries. Yeah, they're moving right. out where it's where it's low cost and then go to Southeast Asia and wherever. But if you're in chemicals, coating components, um, you know, any kind of manufacturing technology, um, they're moving more in, including on the, on the, uh, the communications and telecom uh, supply chain. It's, you know, I think what we've done is we've given China a Sputnik moment. We may wake up in 15 years in Silicon Valley is in China. Yeah, I can so see this, you know. Really, yeah, you've raised some interesting. Yeah, you raised some really interesting points, Jim. Because it, you know, everyone assumes. Well, you know, we're just everyone's at a standstill until the U.S.-China works out its issues. But no, I mean, the world's moving on. Southeast Asia is becoming more impactful. Europe is making deals. Japan and Australia cutting uh, trade deals. There's there's vacuums that have been created everywhere, and they're being filled by our competitors and allies. And in, and every nobody seems to really stop and recognize, you know, the long term implications of that. So I think you've raised a really interesting point well as hank paulson uh, has taken to saying you can't decouple if you're not a couple <laughs> you know there's more there's more than two countries in this world that are involved in it yeah yeah and uh you know as, as we as we lay out our stance um china's looking at how it works with other countries and american companies are looking how they how they associate themselves with other jurisdictions in order to not be looked at as a um, legally is an American uh, 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 product so that they can sell because they figure if this president's doing this, this may be a new thing that a bunch of people are going to use. Uh, you know, we may end up like what happened with taxes when business taxes were so high, people you know, bought a company in Ireland and incorporated in Ireland. We may see some of these tech companies doing that. I mean, you look at chips. I mean, chips, 80% of, 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 world, of, 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 of chips are sold outside the United States. China's the biggest market. I mean, look at some of these companies. 60, 70, 80% of their chips are sold in China. Mm. Huawei sources $11 billion a year in uh, components and parts and technology from American companies. Um, so this is, uh, and, and what Huawei's doing now is they're dumping tons of money into Chinese entrepreneurs and startups. And they're saying, look, you can fail. Um, that's fine. We're going to help you. Um, but, you know, we, we want our supply chain to be local. I had dinner with some uh, Chinese venture capitalists in Silicon Valley uh, last year, and they were investing in Chinese chip companies, and they were figuring it would be the best payoff of their life. Mm, yeah. And, you know, look, 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 we, you know, look at the talent China has. I mean, tens of thousands of Chinese have gone to Carnegie Mellon, MIT, Cal Polytech, they work for Siemens, they work for HP, they work for Google, they work for you name it, 
and they got opportunity now. Um, you, you know, you know, it feels like to me, and, and maybe this would resonate with you, given, you know, your history, but I swear it feels like a quagmire. It feels like we're bogged down in Vietnam. The American troops, far superior in so many ways, are getting picked off left, right, and center. And the Viet Cong are simply getting a lot better on fighting that war. And that we have no way of extracting, no way of right, leaving with our heads up. It's basically just, you know, it, it's kind of fait accompli. And this is, this is something to me which is my biggest concern because I just don't know you know, the more that this rhetoric continues and the China bashing and the U.S., uh, you know, positioning on this and everything else that's going on, I don't see a way of extracting ourselves in a reasonable and practical fashion, which basically brings us back to this open letter, which it does feel like a practical seven-point, you know, argument as to what might be done and should be done before it's too late. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the letter is the letter is an effort in the right direction. Um, I, I, again, there's things in there that I would have worded differently, but it's uh, you know, it's, it's about let, let's not be enemy. Let's you know, let's not. Once you're on the stance of having of being enemies, you know, where could this go? Especially under an administration like this, the you know the the, the sad thing is. You know, Trump had a real opportunity because it was time to push back. The business community was all about pushing back. And he's, he, you know, he's just wacko enough that the Chinese can't figure him out, and that would give him some advantage. But he has just squandered it by slopping around with all, all the, he's done with these tariffs. And, um, you know, the tariffs got China's attention. But now the tariffs are lead the tariffs and this entity list are leading to American business looking at how they become less American mm. and how they get more of their supply chain in here. Because look, if you're in the Internet of Things, uh, self-driving cars, uh, electric vehicles, so much high-end manufacturing technology, this is where this stuff is going to come. Um, I'm 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 in a, a group of about eighty uh, uh, C- foreign CEOs of foreign companies in China. And we get together once a month, and you know a number of these people are saying, and they're from Europe, America, and elsewhere. They're saying that China is going to be where they develop their artificial intelligence capabilities for their businesses globally, because people here move in China speed. They move in China time. They move very fast. They can innovate, um, and you know, there's the data is here, um, and so there, you know this market if. if the U.S. companies are not able to be in this market and be active in this market um, very well can fall behind in technology because the talent will come here, um, money money will come here. I mean, last year there was $19 billion in American venture capital invested in Chinese startups. It's, it's actually fallen um, uh, this year so far. It's the first time it's fallen. The last year was $19 billion. So enough dickering around. We have to do something, I guess, is what you're saying, because it's moving quickly and uh, we're going to be left behind. But uh, again, it leaves this big question, Jim, which is um, what is that thing? Um, How do we, you know, pull ourselves up and do this in a mutually beneficial way? And uh, it just still feels like, you know, we're mired in, in the same issues, the same discussions and the same failed diplomatic salvos. Yes. Well, uh yeah, this is. I think this is many conversations and uh, uh, you know lots of consternation. But um, my, you know, I'm I, I'm not a trade negotiator, but I've been around for 30 years in this country and been involved in this stuff. I really like the idea of um, 
coming to an agreement now, bring the boil down, and then engage in reciprocity talks. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, sometimes it's just about changing the conversation and changing the optics, because both sides know that, that this, sh- this is not a good position for these two countries to be in, and it's not going to be good for either country. Trade wars you know, lead to two losers, not a, no winners. And so they, they need a way out, and to me that, that, that's my idea on a way out for what it's worth. Jim, again from Inside Asia, and uh, for all of us listeners out there who've enjoyed your uh, your, your positions on this in, the, in uh, the, the months and years past, thank you so much, and keep fighting the good fight. Always good to talk to you, Steve. Thanks, all Jim. Right. Take care. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. That was my conversation with Jim McGregor, longtime China resident, corporate advisor, and respected insider. We spoke at length about the evolution of U.S.-China relations and how and why things have gone so off-kilter. There's enough blame to go around. Look hard enough and most every China player from politician to corporate leader is culpable in one way or the other. As Jim points out, neither the Philistines of the U.S. business community nor academics enthralled by the promise of political moderation can escape some responsibility for the current state of affairs. China is both what we made it and what it has become through its own grit and tenacity. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, we take a cut at thinking past the blame and towards the solution. So shut down that Twitter feed, turn off the China bashing, close your eyes, and imagine a future where policymakers on both sides see a future fashioned from collaboration versus competition. Hold on a minute. Who am I kidding? We live in divisive times, where political polarization is the favorite pastime. Apparently, not even our vaunted community of sinologists are able to rise above the fray of rancid disagreement. Someone has to be right, right? Not unlike the great divide between U.S. liberals and conservatives, it feels like this group of China-watching elites are more concerned with their own reputations than actually arriving at a reasonable and executable strategy for dealing with a critical geopolitical relationship. The Taiwan faction of Sinologists reminds us that the Chinese Communist Party should not be confused with the Chinese general public. They say that China's communist leaders have effectively hoodwinked the U.S. and its Western allies into believing that China is moderating and opening up to more liberal political and economic ideas. Poppycocks say the hardliners. China and those in power representing it are hell-bent on fooling the world while pursuing its unilateral objectives of global dominance. On the other side of the debate are those signatories of the July 3 open letter that seem to be calling for a little more trust and a lot more faith in a human response to the current crisis. In referencing China, the term Cold War has been bandied about so much in the past 12 months that it's becoming nearly impossible to shed images of U.S.-Soviet conflict and the prospect of mutual assured destruction. Recycling these images only serves the interests of our political retrogrades. Painting China with a Soviet brush unnecessarily evokes public doubt and even terror. The last thing the world needs is another global public enemy. And while that makes for good headlines and populist prowess, it does nothing to advance the cause of humanity. It's been said that artificial intelligence is to China what nuclear weapons were to the Soviets. Do we want or can we really afford a technology arms race that pits U.S. innovation against that of the Chinese? Is it necessary to expunge Chinese PhDs from American universities, block Chinese acquisition of U.S. tech firms, or ban Chinese companies and investors from Western markets? 
Does the West really think that by isolating China, the country will crawl back into its pre-industrial shell and simply disappear? I think not. AI, like nuclear technology, has the capacity to either destroy or electrify the world. AI is a harbinger of technological hope with the potential to solve some of humanity's greatest threats. Climate change, poverty, disease, and war are the real enemies. Not China. Not now, at least. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. What's your take on the China question? Is there room for cooperation, or is it time for talking over and done? Let us know what you think by leaving a comment on the Inside Asia page on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Review and rate this episode wherever you download and listen to podcasts. Visit us and subscribe to Inside Asia on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Search for Inside Asia, flick the subscribe button, and start downloading. We have nearly 100 episodes to choose from, in-depth conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders in Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.